Welcome to the Less True podcast presented by Gulf Food, the largest annual FMB sourcing event in the world. I'm your host, Jeraria Hersey, bringing you compelling stories and insights to a wide range of topics in the food and drinks industry. From farming, behind the scenes, to the culinary world, and to foods we simply love to chew on. In this podcast series, we speak to people, brands, and businesses across the food and drinks spectrum to find out more about why they do what they do and how, in their own way, they're championing change and shifting the future of food and drink. Trust me, there's so much more. So listen to the Less True podcast on our website, gulffood.com, and subscribe to our newsletter for the latest updates in food. Welcome back to another episode of the Less Chew Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Jerry Hersey. And on today's episode, we have serial social entrepreneur, Sunali Figueres, who is the founder and editor-in-chief of Green Queen, which is an award-winning impact media platform advocating for social and environmental change in Hong Kong with a mission to shift consumer behavior through inspiring and empowering original content. She's also the founder of Eco Warehouse, a sustainable packing company. Welcome to the show, Sunali. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm honored. I'm, I was really looking forward to our conversation. So let's just go into it. And uh, if you can just tell us a little bit about your background and your journey to where you are today and uh, why you do what you do. Yeah, absolutely. My journey started really around health. I, um, I've ha- I have a lot of uh, chronic health issues that I didn't know um, how to identify or how to treat when I was younger. Um, I just had symptoms that sort of added up to some something that was unexplainable and in in the western kind of allopathic medicine uh framework that I was exposed to that my you know my parents would bring me to the doctor it just felt that I was always a bit shrugged off and told that you know it would go away I had a lot of digestive issue symptoms and and uh discomfort and pain Um, And then eventually it took a few years, but I eventually figured out that I have endometriosis and I have Hashimoto's thyroiditis um, and I have insulin resistance. So these are all diseases where your body's essentially out of whack. It's, it's your, the way the hormones in your body are not working correctly. And so your, your body's homeostasis is just like not happening very well. And then on top of it, with something like a Hashimoto's thyroiditis, it's an autoimmune disease. So essentially your body is sort of like hurting itself, right? Yeah. And it's it, there's a lot of inflammation and issues with immune immune system. And, and so you're you're just you just don't feel very well. Um, but it's not life-threatening per se, although obviously over decades that kind mm-hmm. of inflammation and discomfort is life-threatening, but it's not acutely life-threatening, right? And so there isn't sort of an injection or a medication that you can take. And at the time when I first figured out that I had these things, there really wasn't much literature about it. There weren't many studies, certainly not many studies done on women or women of color like myself or just, just 
there wasn't a lot of information. And the doctors that I went to see, which unfortunately tended to mostly be older white males, whether this was in the US or even in Hong Kong or in London, you know, where different places where I lived or my parents were living, it just never felt like anyone was listening. And I just felt very helpless. And around this time, you know, I had just, I'd been in university and Google had really come out and I started to go crazy using Google to do research, which is so funny because we're in the middle of this like kind of chat GPT revolution, right? Where people <laughs> are asking chat GPT all kinds of questions. And I wonder what would have happened if I had used it for a medical reason. But I, I did a ton of research and figured out, I found all these, you know, esoteric papers or this medical research around my conditions. And it seemed like possibly using diet to treat the symptoms could be helpful. And so that's what really led me to examining my food um, uh, culture really around, especially around nutrition and health. Cause I had a very healthy food culture, I think um, growing up where we ate a lot of homemade food. My mom's an amazing cook. My grandmother's an amazing cook. Food, you know, food is life in our house. It's all about like the meals and sharing those moments and coming up with new recipes and discovering new places to eat. And so, and, and it always felt very healthy because it was homemade, you know, in the sense yeah. my mom was always like, okay, you want a cookie? I'll make it for you. Just don't buy it, you know? Um, but it ended up going beyond that for me into how the food was grown. And I had never been confronted with any of those issues around agriculture, around pesticide use, around uh, whether the soil was depleted from nutrients and whether, you know, water pollution was affecting the food that I was eating and the hormones and the antibiotics in the, in the animal meats that I grew up eating and the dairy products that I grew up consuming and all of this kind of... Oh, you know, all these topics that felt very important. And yet no teacher had ever mentioned it. No parent had ever mentioned it. No doctor or medical professional had ever mentioned it. Um, and that just felt really wrong to me. Um, and then I got into, okay, well, it's not just the foods I eat, but it's, you know, the shampoo on my head and the spray I'm using to clean my kitchen counters. And, and so I ended up um, having this kind of eco awakening and I completely changed my life. And that's also where I stopped using plastic because originally today, I think plastic is much more associated with, and rightly so with environmental waste. But, a, but 20 years ago, there was a lot of chatter in kind of niche health communities around plastic and, and hormone disruption. And it's very likely that my excessive exposure to plastics growing up has worsened my hormone conditions, uh, which are both related to hormone to disruption. And so I really changed my life and found it difficult to live that life, right? Because I was, first of all, I was definitely in a city where a lot of this culture and these sub niche groups of extreme health and organic food and all that were really just at the beginning if existed at all. Um, and so I had trouble finding information um, and I had trouble finding products and I had trouble connecting with, you know, organic farmers and such and such. But I mean, this is a long time ago. It's a completely different situation today. So I just want to be very clear about that. 
But um, as a result, I started seeking people out, right? So chefs, um, wellness professionals, um, nutritionists, um, scientists and researchers around agriculture and around toxicity. Um, And that led me to NGOs that were working on some of these issues. And that's really the more I dug, the more I made this connection between food systems and the climate. And the more I realized that our health and the health of the planet are intertwined. And somehow, even to this day, I find it's very separate. I find you've got people that are very into health and then you've got people that are very into environment, environment. but it's not usually overlapped. Whereas at Green Queen, we've always overlapped it. And that's because I felt very strongly that there was this kind of holistic view that needed to be taken. And so because I was meeting all these interesting people and, and, you know, I've always been a news junkie. And and if I look back, I did actually have um, journalistic instincts since I was a young kid, I've started magazines. I was the editor in my high school paper. So there were, there were signs, um, even though I had never thought about it as a career. And so I decided to start this blog to kind of share information. It really started out as I've got all got this little green book of stuff and people and things and places that I am using to live this healthier, kinder, greener life. And maybe other people might get some use of it. But I really didn't understand at the time the power of the internet or what it meant to start a media company. I mean, I don't think I even started a Facebook page. It was really just like a typical WordPress blog. I found a designer online. I had come up with this green queen name and a dream. That is a true story. And she made me this logo. And with like it was, originally it was pink and green with a crown. And there off I went, you know, knowing nothing. And it really just, it resonated with people very early. And very quickly, I started to have people realize that, that people were reading it, started to send a newsletter, started an Instagram and Facebook page, started doing events. People started asking me to speak. That's another thing. I really never planned on becoming a speaker. Um, and then suddenly it was like, you know, in a few years, it was like 50 events a year. You know, it, it really got, it, it, you know, I, I felt like I became the person that people would turn to if they wanted a speaker in Asia around, you know, future of food, climate, sustainability, etc. cetera. Um, as my journey went on, I really started to see the damage of industrial agriculture on a plant, on a climate level. And then I started, you know, making decisions to reduce animal foods in my diet. There were also ethical reasons. For example, I, re- I stopped eating shellfish like prawns and shrimp very, very early on because of um, slavery con- uh, and exploitation um, supply chain issues. And, and it just went from there. And then it just became, and then I got a dog, I remember, and that really changed my relationship to, an, to animals and eating them. And why would one be a pet and one be a food? And it, it all started to just, I wanted to live a, a lower footprint life, not just carbon footprint, but just moral footprint and ethical footprint and all kinds of things. Um, so I like little by little was reducing animal foods. And, and then I decided to make our media the first one in Asia to say, okay, we're not going to cover animal foods. We're no longer going to cover restaurants or, or products. Cause originally we would talk about, you know, grass fed meat or pasture raised eggs or organic dairy, but we turned that off. We were like, you know what? There's tons of other media out there that cover all that stuff. We're going to stick to 
an, another vision of the future, you know, without kind of saying we wanted everyone to go vegan, but more just we wanted people to be inspired by a, a life that that was maybe less focused on, on animal consumption. And around that time, I started tasting products like Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods because I would I, I had another business that was a food supply chain business around organic ingredients. And so I was always going to food shows like Gulf Food, right? Okay. And I would go to food show, shows and I would, I would meet producers and I would meet entrepreneurs. And I started to see this kind of burgeoning of this small group of folks that were starting to make products to replace animal proteins that they were different than what I'd seen before. They, you know, they felt different. The visions felt different. Um, the, the brand building around it felt different. And I just, I remember it was in 2015 or 2016, we, we, we wrote the first article in, a, in Asia about these kind of alternative proteins, although we didn't even have that name then. And it was like sort of these eight companies are going to change, are going to revolutionize the future of food. And we wrote about, um, at the time they were called Hamptons Creek. Now it's Eat Just. And we wrote about Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods. And um, there was also uh, New Wave Foods, which were doing the plant-based shrimp with, made with a seaweed. And, and, and yeah, it was really early on, but that's when the interest started. And then I just started to get more and more kind of connections around that and we started covering it more and and right before the pandemic I decided that I wanted Green Queen to really become a a, a news platform awesome. not just a lifestyle and I wanted it to go global and so we started covering things that's very globally, powerful but with an Asian lens because Asia one of the focus. things that was extremely important to me was I felt that Asia was so important to the future of food, just from a numbers point of view, right? This is where the majority of the population lives. This is where all the population growth is happening. This is where um, meat consumption is going up. And I felt that we needed a voice at the table. And I could see that the brands were really taking off in a very European and American way and North American way. And I wanted to make sure that we were telling the Asian stories and we were bringing in the Asian perspectives and, and highlighting, you know, what was going on here. So what is the and current so state of the industry right now, the plant-based industry? What are you seeing? What are the trends in Asia, yeah. let's say? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, you know, um, in Asia or, or globally. Globally. And then we can just focus on Asia. Well, I think that if obviously alternative proteins is, 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 cultivated meats and seafood and dairy, and then it's precision fermentation, biomass fermentation, molecular farming, and then you've got the whole big plant-based meats and dairy and seafood, et cetera. So let's talk mostly about plant-based because that's really the industry that's mostly come to market, right? Yeah. Um, there's, there's no cultivated meat products in retail stores. There's one country that's, said, that's given approval to one company, Eat Just, for their good meat cultivated chicken. And that's being sold at select restaurants in Singapore, but that's it. Um, otherwise, beyond that, you can't go to the supermarket and buy uh, cultivated products. So plant-based is really the, the part of alternative proteins that has captured global um, headlines and, and that consumers are somewhat aware of, right? Um, and of course, brands like Impossible and Beyond have really dominated that, uh, that story. And so I think it depends which country you go in. I think 
In the US, there's this kind of perception that plant-based meat is taking a bit of a beating. You know, Beyond had the most successful IPO in years in 2019, and now its stock is really um, underperforming and it's just constantly being, uh, you know, used as an example of what's wrong with the industry. I think there's this rhetoric around plant-based meats are, you know, over-processed, which, you know, is, is sort of unfair on many levels. Um, and then there's sort of this perception that people tried a lot of plant-based meats during the pandemic and now it's slowing down. But really what happened is the space got probably overhyped from a funding and VC point of view and media got really excited about it. And yeah. so there was, you know, just headline after headline, launch after launch, new funding round after new funding round all over the world. And then obviously some of the hype died down for other reasons too, like macroeconomic issues and geopolitical issues and rising inflation, rising interest rates, et cetera, you know, a worsening economy globally. So the industry is experiencing a maturing, right? And it's it's, yeah. it's hard to keep up that initial hype forever. Um, and so now more people know about it. There's more market share. There's more products on the shelves. And it's true that not every product is amazing. But at the same point in time, it's an amazing success story of this whole new category of products that's broken through. And you've got, you know, supermarkets that are making their own plant-based meat. And you've got restaurants that are making sure they have a plant-based meat option on their menus. And you've got, believe it or not, over a thousand different plant-based meat brands across the world. Um, so it, it it's sometimes a bit reductive in the media in the sense of just looking at impossible or beyond and judging everybody on, on that lens. two companies, right? When there is yeah. literally a thousand companies and they're all using different ingredients and have different types of products and formats and, and brand experiences. And so it's really, um, it's really changed. Uh, I think the world has changed because of the, the advent of plant-based meat 2.0. And of course, being in Asia, we know there's always been what we used to call here mock meats, right? Made out of gluten or seitan or different kinds of tofu and soy products. Um, and they're still around and they're still great. But here we went to a, a, a point where you had a company like Impossible Foods that was studying ground meat and how it was made and sort of thinking, how can we engineer plants to taste exactly like animal ground meat, you know? And yeah. so that was just like a different approach to looking at how to, pr 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 to create these products. And um, I think it's been extremely successful, but I think there are, it's going to be a more difficult year for plant-based meats overall, just because I think a lot of venture capitalist funds the ones who are dedicated to this industry, like the alt protein funds, they're going to stay stick around. But generalist VCs have de have decided to, um, you know, maybe just I guess take sit sit tight before they invest more because valuations are coming down and it, it's just it's it's just been more challenging business environment. So but how are consumers like? we know the company's investment space, but what about consumers' behavior? How are consumers reacting to the future or like alt protein? How are they reacting to that? Well, I mean, like anything, I don't think there's, I don't think consumers are a homogenous group. I think you have 
you know, very, very dedicated vegans who have ethical reasons for wanting to choose these products. I think you have um, flexitarian consumers, which I see as a really important and growing base who are looking to have variety in their diet and reduce animal products, mostly for environmental reasons. And so they're looking to trial and discover new foods, right? Yeah. And then you definitely also have consumers that are a little bit more uh, maybe just hesitant. Maybe they're they're an older demographic, um, or they're just they're just more old fashioned as people, and they are very very committed to you know animal foods as part of their identity, and so that's a harder sell. But in general, you could make the argument that you know the younger a person is, the more open they are to these alternatives. Um, a lot of times, there's also a health argument. And that's what we see a lot in Asia okay. is that in Asia, you have this understanding that too much meat is unhealthy. And so the, a lot of the products here and the brands here um, are, are basically, they, they, they speak more about things like cholesterol free or saturated fat free or that kind of angle, right? Maybe yeah. it's necessarily the environmental angle as much um i i've just been writing a, a few articles around you know why asia asian consumers are quite different and i talked a lot about this idea of the happy cow myth that i've that i've coined where it's basically you know a lot of my european friends and, and even myself being half french you have this kind of happy cow myth that you grew up with where these like these like white cows with black spots that are like happily in a field and it's a beautiful green field and they're just like you know chewing on their grass and that's those that's where we get our milk from you know and I think that if you grew up in Asia you don't really have that happy cow myth um as part of your childhood story and your connection with dairy products and so you're not as you know, you likely did not do not have a dairy farmer in your family tree. Whereas I feel like a lot of Europeans and Americans that I know have some kind of farmer and maybe even a dairy farmer in their family tree. And so it's a very different relationship to dairy as an industry. Yeah. And you said you mentioned the environmental impact and uh, we're facing the biggest threat of our generation, which is climate change. Can you just mm -hmm. shed some light on the link between climate change and what we eat and ways that we can combat the climate change through food. Sure, sure. So um, the, the thing is, is that because of our industrialized food system, which we, we, went, we, we, we moved to an industrialized food system so that we could make food production more efficient and so that we could feed more people and also make it more affordable. And in the past, you know, we've we've reckoned with things like mass hunger and new, mass nutrient deficiencies. And so the idea was to industrialize the food system to really fight those issues. Um, in the end, though, what we've ended up with is a system where we are it, right now the amount of industrial industrially produced meat and dairy that is consumed by the average um, US citizen, right? If everyone in the world started eating like that, 
we would need five to seven planets because it takes up so much land. It takes up so much water. It takes up so many antibiotics and hormones, right? And what we're doing is that in order, we need to create feed for those cows. So we're growing soybean and corn to feed those cows, which in itself is problematic because cows are meant to eat grass. But in order to make the process more efficient, we fatten them up by feeding them grain. Of course, that's not their diet of choice. So then they get more sick. So we have to give them things like antibiotics, right? And essentially growing a cow to create protein for us to eat is totally inefficient. Um, So we found ways to make it more efficient, but those ways are damaging to the environment and to our health. And what people, a lot of people don't realize is that, um, you know, if you look at the total carbon budget of the planet, the food industry is almost a third of that. That's true. And the livestock industry, so beef to create dairy and so cows to create dairy and beef is between 14 and 18% of global greenhouse emissions. Cows also um, create, uh, they release methane, right? In the form of, of, of gas farts. Um, and that methane actually is, is a much, it's even worse than carbon for global warming. It exacerbates global warming more. So that's another argument for it. Um, Raising cows is also very, very uh, dirty business in terms of water and and diseases. So what ends up happening is areas that are, that surround slaughterhouses and cow farms are actually quite toxic. Um, It's also a very unpleasant industry for the workers. We, 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 we rely on, you know, undocumented, very, very cheap labor in many places to produce this industrial dairy. It's basically a system that exists for us to get really, really cheap meat. So how but can we combat these issues and like tackle climate change? Obviously, it's not overnight, but like what are some steps or slow steps that we can take? Well, I mean, first of all, we need consumers to understand that there is a connection, right? And that the what's really important to understand is that we never used to eat this much meat, but now we eat way too much meat. We don't need to eat beef three times a day or even twice a day or even every day, right? Animal protein used to be something very valuable and scarce that we only ate once in a while. And now we eat it, it's everywhere and it's cheap and it's, It's just, we're addicted to it. And it's also bad for our health, for us to eat so much meat. So I think the first thing we need to do is really spend a lot of time educating and informing people around reducing meat consumption. The second thing we need to do is offer people alternatives, which is what alternative protein companies are trying to do. And the third thing that we really need to work on is um, around um, working to kind of fix some of the issues in the industry, like reducing antibiotic usage, right? And having regulations so that, you know, cows have to eat their natural diet for most of the year. And, you know, reducing the, um, not cutting down um, Amazonian forest in order to to grow soybeans to feed cows, because that's really what what's also terrible is that 
we are bringing upon even more industrial um, environmental destruction because we have in the Amazon, for example, it's reduced its size by more than 50% in order to raise soybean and to have grass, to have, to have pasture land for cows because of our crazy appetite for beef. So, and, and, and the problem is, you know, tropical forests like the Amazon are huge carbon sinks that help to combat the effects of global warming. And now we're cutting down those very, those very carbon sinks, the trees in the Amazon, just so we can eat meat. And the problem is, the, you know, the more we make meat cheap and the more we make people addicted to meat, then the more people want to eat meat. And we, we simply, we cannot get to the point where we've just cut down every tree in the world so that we can grow more cows, you know? So we, we really have to start thinking about how can we eat in a way that is, you know, more at peace with and at harmony with, you know, a planet that is going to have to face quite extreme consequences of the climate crisis. So do you think it's enough for just like media and companies to be pushing this agenda? Or do you think governments should, should also push I, this? I think government, I, I honestly don't know if we can meet the targets without government action. I think we need to seriously consider um, policy around diet in the same way that governments are considering policy around sugar consumption, right? In the same way that we have government policy around electric vehicles, right? Yeah. And renewable energy, we need to get to the point where the government is looking at the food system in the same way that they're looking at all the other industries and that they're looking at the toxicity, the, the pollution track record, the, the emissions track record and going, okay, we're implementing changes to this so that individuals are guided on how to make different choices. Um, so yeah, I think businesses need to change. I think individuals need more help and information and access to resources so they could change. But without major government policy change, it's hard to get companies to really change, right? Imagine if Imagine if you had to pay the true cost of meat, including like the cost of all the antibiotics that are used in the meat industry and what that's done to cause super bug resistance. So, so our antibiotics are no longer working on us because we've got too many antibiotics in our system because we're eating all this industrial meat, right? And mm -hmm. what about if meat companies had to pay for the water, the rivers and the, the lakes that they pollute? What if they had to pay actual living wages to meat workers? You know, what if they only could feed cows grass, which is what cows are supposed to eat? What if they weren't allowed to cut down any more trees? So what happens if you put in all the restrictions of what it should look like? I think then but only I, there's an impact. Right, but because yeah. big meat is so... Um, is so powerful, big food, big meat, it's really, really, it, it's impossible to, to, and they're not going to give up their profits. That's really the problem. True. So when you're doing these research in comparison to other regions, what can we learn from the Asia's plant-based and alt protein industry? Um, what can we learn? Well, one of the things we can learn is that Asian companies have been very smart about localizing their product 
and really listening to their consumer. And so while the Impossible Burger is a hero product in the West, burgers are not the main food of Asian consumers. And Asia is not just one place. It's, you know, dozens of countries with their own food cultures and sub food and regional food cultures. And, and so what, what is really important to understand, and I think Asian companies really understand that is that food is so personal. Food is so linked with identity and culture and tradition and family. And you can't just show up and say, eat this instead. You really have to work with um, people on the ground and understand food culture and understand how you can work with local ecosystem players and local cultural um, touch points to shift the conversation towards a more climate friendly way of eating. And at the end of the day, you know, most local ecosystems and, and people want to change towards a more climate friendly way of, of eating because they know they have to, right? Because we're all affected by climate change. And actually Asian consumers feel the effects of climate change the most. A lot, most of the extreme weather and in, in the future, mass migration as a result of climate change will affect the Asian continent the most. And we're gonna experience the fastest population growth of anyone. We're probably gonna experience the most climate related diseases. We're gonna experience some of the most, you know, uh, strong growth curves around animal meat consumption as we move hundreds of millions of people into the middle class. And when people um, get more disposable income, they tend to want more highly nutritious food and they tend to see animal foods as part of that. So all of this is gonna create a demand that we genuinely cannot meet. Um, one of the things I talk about a lot is the term alternative protein is a bit of a, of a mistake because these are not alternative proteins. These are other, another type of proteins because it's gonna to get to the point where even if we keep producing all the animal foods we produce today, we won't have enough for the demand. So we're gonna need alternatives anyway. We're gonna need additional options. So I think we, one needs to think that way. I also think it's such an amazing opportunity to create foods that are even more nutritious, right? Yeah. I think the lessons we can learn is health is really important. It's what motivates most Asian consumers around plant-based foods. Um, localizing a product is really important and understanding who your audience is and making sure that the food fits in their cultural food tradition. Right? Yeah. Those are so really important lessons that I think Asian brands in this space really understand well. That's very interesting. And you also run um, a sustainable company. So in terms of sustainability, what behavioral changes or shifts do you see among consumers? And if you have any advice for a business or individual like me, who's just trying to become more sustainable, what would that be? I think for businesses, it's really important to look into the future and go, am I a climate resilient business? Can I keep producing the products and services that I do um, today in 10 years? What happens if the more extreme consequences of climate change come through? Is my business protected against that? And I think it's really important to have at least one person, if not a team of people that are getting the company ready for a future where climate issues will be dominant. 
And climate issues being dominant means food security problems, food supply chain disruptions. COVID, you could think of it as a bit of a preview for what we're gonna live through, except it's gonna be more permanent. That's scary. It is scary. And so that's why it's really important to go in with your eyes wide open as a company, as a consumer, I think I try to think about, you know, what can I do on a daily basis that helps me have a more climate conscious life? You know, if I, if I can't go vegan, can I, can I just reduce my meat? Can I, can I explore new recipes? Can I, can I use it as an opportunity to, you know, maybe I say, I say to my friends, Hey, let's start a, you know, Tuesday green dinner club. And like, we either do like a potluck together where everyone brings a meatless dish, or we agree to try a new restaurant that, that a different one every week that is offering, you know, non-meat options. I think there's ways to make it fun, to make it a community thing, to see what it's like to consider these issues in a world that is really going to be beset with them. That's really true. Um, this is very controversial, but what specific trends do you think that we need to just discard no longer is serving a purpose? Any plant-based terms or just anything that's overhyped? What do you think? You mean within specifically within um... the plant-based industry or veganism or just yeah, okay. a recipe? I, I it could be a... What I think we need to discard is this idea that we need to be perfect climate conscious, vegan conscious people. I think that that kind of rhetoric can sometimes alienate the average person and make them disengage with the entire conversation. Okay. When I think it's really more, it, it's more about respecting that everyone's at a different point in their journey and being inclusive and open and having different ways and entry points for people to come in, right? Like maybe for some people, they engage with the climate conversation through fashion. Maybe for some people, it's through food. Maybe through some people, it's, you know, through um, energy, like, like the car they choose. But I think we need to be more open to little steps and little changes. Um, because what I know for sure, having done this for so long and met so many different people at different points in their journey is, once you start this journey, you slowly change more and more. So the really important thing is to start. If you start eating meat once a week less, you will eventually be like, hmm, interesting. I might, I feel like I have more energy the next day. I, I, I realize that when I don't eat meat, I sleep better. I feel lighter. Okay, maybe I'm going to do it twice a week. And then maybe I'm going to do it three times a week. But maybe that person's never going to do it seven days a week, but three times a week, if everyone did that, that's a huge shift. That, that, that's a huge change in demand and a huge impact in terms of emissions and ethical considerations and animal lives. And so, but we could have easily discouraged that very person from even starting by making them feel like it was an all or nothing. So I think the really important trend to get rid of is extreme positioning and really just working to be more inclusive and open and, and giving people options and access. Um, 
you know, and the other trend I really push for is diversity. So diversity in flavor and thought in format, right? Really trying to engage with all kinds of people. This, this should not be a global North centric or Western centric movement. And especially since very honestly, global North countries are richer per capita, have more resources to weather climate change and will be on average less affected than the global South. That's very interesting. And I'm truly inspired because I did try to turn vegan, like not vegan, actually, I turned just vegetarian and then I did pescatarian for a year, but then I started having more sugar cravings. So I eventually did stop, but I did reduce my meat intake for at least like three times a week to two, but uh, I still have a long way to go, but this is very inspiring. So um, just to switch a little bit, um, you're running the largest plant-based media platform. Um, were there any challenges you had to overcome so far being like a female in the industry? Oh, I still have to overcome them all the time. I'm often, <laughs> I'm often the token female. People think I don't know, but I do know I'm often the only female in the room. Um, I, I think even being in media, it's difficult because I'm, I think people don't even always take media as seriously as a business in terms of, you know, getting investment and getting resources, right? Like everything's around products when actually without the media to, you know, our media helps people get funded, helps people get deals in supermarkets, helps customers learn about products, but it's really difficult for industry to see media as valuable. So that's, I think, the biggest challenge when everyone knows it's valuable and everyone tells me that they read it and everyone needs it. But I think from a, the, making the business case for media, and this is not just true of me, and this is all media in general, we're, we're at a point in time where media has never been more important and, and, and valuable and, and needed, and yet it's never been more at risk from, for, from business model point of view. That's true. It's been really great having you. So um, just last words for our listeners before we uh, wrap up the episode. What is next for you in terms of your long-term vision for yourself and for your brands? Yeah, for me, my long-term last words is start wherever you can and don't get caught up in extreme ways of thinking. Just do whatever you can. Look at your plate, look at your life, look at your fridge and think, how can I make small choices that can have, you know, big impacts for the climate and for, for, you know, a more stable food future. Um, and then for, for us at Green Queen, you know, I think my vision is really how can I help people eat in a way that is climate resilient? That's really what I'm looking to answer as a question. That's powerful. Thank you so much for joining us, Sonali. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks again for joining us, Sonali. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Less Chew podcast as much as I have. And if you did, please leave us a review. And don't forget to join us at Gulf Food 2023 to engage with the entire FNB community. This February from the 20th to the 24th, you can get your tickets today on our website, www.gulffood.com. Com. See you soon and bye for now.